1: my visit to Upward Hartford, an incubator sponsored by the state of Connecticut. Uh, I was there because I was speaking on cyber risk and blockchain with the former CISO General Dynamics, so Chief Information Security Officer, Prithee Prakash. And he and I both spoke at lunch for um, all the implications that are happening in relation to cybersecurity, cyber risk, and blockchain I was actually quite flattered because Senator Joan Hartley actually came just to hear us speak. So I'll do more about what was happening on our talk in a future episode. Other things that were going on for this summit, there were 21 cybersecurity companies and the incubator chose two for me to interview, which I will talk about in the next segment. They have innovations happening in cyber risk around document management and third party risk. Um, also, I have the Chief Technology Officer or the former Chief Technology Officer of the Department of Homeland Security, Michael Hermes. He'll also be on later in the show. And we also have the Economic Minister of Israel for the East Coast on. So for this week's tech news, the theme is all about cybersecurity. So the largest chip maker for phones in the world, Taiwan Semiconductor. I talked about earlier that they got hit with a virus and it was different than a hack because it was already in their systems, their manufacturing systems. And so the price tag to remediate this is $170 million. And again, this is something where the infection was resident in whatever technology they bought from somebody else. We call this third-party risk, and again, if it can happen to the world's largest chip manufacturer for phones, it can happen to you. Also, Australia's biggest breach offender is the healthcare sector, which happens to also be, before Equifax, the the US's biggest vector as well. And so, again, back to the theme about cyber risk, if hospitals and healthcare systems around the world aren't safe, Um, neither are you. In Atlanta, the final bill for ransomware, and they got hit a few months back, is $17 million. Recall that they originally were hacked and were offered a $50,000 bounty, a reward. So for $50,000, they could have gotten their code released, supposedly or allegedly. We never know if that really is going to happen. But the final bill was $17 million. And in this case, having Patched systems, which means keeping the software that you run up to date, would have avoided that $17 million. In an unrelated to cyber risk article, there was a new article that came out that says that no one is buying anything on Alexa. And why that's relevant is that we're starting to use Alexa, Siri, Google, Cortana, um, these voice assistants for all kinds of things. And if you think about Alexa, which is sponsored by Amazon and the whole intent on Amazon is to make you buy things, people are doing everything with Alexa except that they're not actually buying anything. And that's the news of the week. So welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, today we have a lot going on. We have a lot of items to cover. And so one thing I really wanted to bring up, which was in the news a little while back, was Facebook suffered a $119 billion drop in market cap in a single day, which is the largest drop of any stock in history. But the reasons why are a little bit complex, but have been in the news. Uh, let's just boil it down to Facebook is considered a centralized platform for social media. And with that, it comes a lot of power. And as more and more information is coming out, whether you want to call it fake news, um, election meddling, what have you, uh, they're under a really intense microscope at this point. So I'm going to bring up a few things. Uh, one was that Facebook is now being seen as a platform that was enabling a lot of interference, especially with the elections, and so much so that there's internal conflict about what their role is, uh, we see the the after effects of this because Facebook has started to, one, you might have heard the term shadow ban, and two, they're actually going through and looking through different pages to see if it, they could qualify that as fake news. And so a lot of things are being are being uh, quote unquote deleted or accounts are being deleted. Um, Zuckerberg had stated in his address to the government that. He, and to shareholders that they're going to significantly increase their spending uh, to defend against these types of uh, what they believe are misinformation. And that expense alone was a reason for one of the reasons for why their stock dropped. Uh, one of the things that came out of this was this whole concept of trolls. So, you know, we think of trolls as the troll under the bridge, as a troll doll. Uh, really what a troll is, is and this comes from a variety of different sources. So I picked this article from Elise Moreau on uh, LifeWire that uh, you know trolls are a member of an online community who deliberately try to disrupt, attack, offend, or just try to cause trouble. And we see this in all forms of social media. We could tie this into uh, Robert Mueller's investigation of quote-unquote a Russian troll farm. And that's where... There is an entire business set up, um, you know, possibly overseas, possibly United States. But in essence, you're hiring people to spread this, these types of instigators, if you will, on on um, taking sides. In this case, they're saying that in the election of 2016, actually, that there were trolls um, formatting discontent on both sides of Uh, the Democrats or the Republicans, right? Because their their main goal is just to cause discourse throughout uh, the US election process. So we can even go back to Nikki Haley talking about, um, at a keynote where she was saying that instead of talking about trolls, maybe people should just be really cognizant of the types of persuasion that they can influence or have. This just means that uh, don't believe everything you read or hear online. Some examples of internet trolls are, and and you might resonate with you, is the insult troll, so somebody who just causes insults all the time, and uh, the persistent debate troll, so their only point is just a debate, not really to win an argument. The grammar and spell check troll, which I have lots of friends that are like this, uh, the grammar Nazi. The forever offended troll, somebody that no matter what you say is always going to uh, be unhappy. The show off or know it all or blabbermouth troll. So they write pages and pages and pages of stuff just to make sure that they're always correct. Uh, profanity and all caps troll. And the list goes on and on. I'm sure if you Google it, you can find out all different forms of trolls. So again, thanks for being with us today on the show. Coming up, we have interviews with two cyber risk companies as well as the former chief technology officer of the Department of Homeland Security, Michael Hermes. You can always reach me as Keith Koo on LinkedIn, uh, Keith Koo on Facebook, or email us at info at svn.biz, and we'll be right back.
0: For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your
1: hosts, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. This week's show, I'm doing a recap of my visit to Hartford, Connecticut's incubator, Upward Hartford. And I had a great time being uh, the speaker on blockchain and cyber risk. Uh, In our last segment, I went through uh, kind of what's going on in the news with Facebook and this whole concept of trolls. So please download the podcast if you want to hear about my content on what trolls are, like trolls under the bridge. So for the question of the week, I've been doing a series on confirmation biases in systems or systemic biases. Uh, This came out of a conversation I had with Dr. John Madison, chief health information officer of Kaiser a little while back. And so this ties into what I talked about in the first segment with Facebook. There's a concept called similarity bias. Similarity bias is where the more you do an action, uh, the more it's going to be confirmed. So Google search engines and Facebook are perfect for this. Uh, Google, when you type in a search, it's showing you the most frequent items that people searched for. So that's similarity bias. In Facebook, I can give a personal example where um, I'm a diehard Oakland A's fan. Sorry, Giants fans. And I have friends who are Giants fans. And uh, there was one particular year that uh, somebody wrote something about the A's, which I liked. And my friends who's a Giants fan jumped in and said, I can't believe that you you are... In favor of the A's and you, you really don't support the Giants? And I said, You know what? I've actually trained my Facebook to never show me a Giants article, which is actually true. And so I don't know what you're talking about. And so he was, he, my friend was just basically saying on Facebook, You know, you really, and he was becoming a troll. Go listen to the earlier uh, part of this segment to find that. Um, he was really saying, You know, you're offending me from your diehard love of the Oakland A's where you should be fair and like the Giants. I say the Giants never shows up in my feed. In fact, at this moment, I'm actually not even typing in the Giants anywhere in my comments, so it'll still never show up in my feed. And it it took him a really long time to understand this, and more and more people kept explaining to him that you can actually train your Facebook. So back to similarity bias. Social media creates a dopamine effect, something that makes it pleasurable and feel good to you. And so just be very aware of similarity bias when you're interacting with systems. And that's the question of the week. So while I was at this summit on cyber risk in Hartford, Connecticut, I got a chance to meet two companies. First up is Aviv Graffi, who's the co-founder and CEO of a document management company called Votero. And how Votero is unique is that they actually scan for documents as they're coming in through, say, email. And they can check, for one, whether or not it's infected or there's malware in it. And two, if there is, they can actually strip out that malware, reconstruct the document in a safe manner, and then send it on along to an HR department, to a design group. And also, they say that they do a validation process to ensure that even after they've reconstructed this document, it is as it was intended to be sent. So let's listen to what Aviv has to say. So I'm thinking this is a great technology. I'm thinking that now I have the ability to take out malicious embedded software in a file and get what I exactly I want. How does the end user know that you successfully got only the malware and kept everything else intact? That, that's a great question. So actually, uh, um,
2: CDI, it's all about the edge, case, edge cases. Actually, when, when we started that, uh, I would say, development of the technology, Frankly, we had some issues, like any any startup uh, when started. But now, I think three, four, three or four years after we in, we actually we started developing that in, in, in masses, uh, we found that we know how to preserve the content and we provide our customers the ability to see for themselves that we're preserving any, any content, any piece of content that is relevant for their uh, uh, daily activities and the user experience.
1: And, and that's great because I come from um, as a bank executive, I come from the background of. Uh, data protection, data privacy. So then, if I understand it, you get a document from the customer. It's exactly the file they give you. You sanitize the document and you give it back to them and the ability to compare what they sent to what they received.
2: Yeah, actually, we're doing that internally and provide them the, the assurance that it's the exact same user experience. That's our promise, and that's a challenge, of
1: course. That's great. So, so what are some of the customer success stories you've had so far?
2: So that's very interesting because um, we didn't thought about when we started. We thought, we started. we thought about email security and attachment and web downloads, but, and then we provided an API. So a, any customer can integrate our technology into their own business application, and then something very surprising happened. Actually, we found at the bank that uh, they, they're providing the customer a mobile app on their phones. And uh, as you know, uh, today you can actually scan a check mm-hmm. by, by just taking a picture. And actually, they realized that uh, those checks actually uh, might contain some malicious code and deliver directly to the da- database of the bank. Right. So they integrated our technology into that business pipe and every check that is scanned uh, going to virtual before entering the organization. So that's, that's okay. I would say, very successful.
1: So Aviv and Votero really had an interesting take on document management, just proving that innovation happens in all forms. The next guest up is Matan Orel, who's the founder and chief executive officer of a third-party risk company called PanelRays. And what PanelRays does is, in this class of third-party risk, something I'm very close to, they actually scan for vulnerabilities in third-party, say, websites, and then look for those vulnerabilities, report on those vulnerabilities, so that you can have an advance warning that a group you're interacting with is at risk. So let's take a listen to Matan. As we talk about panel raise, mm-hmm. coming from Imperva, what made you think to focus on third-party risk? Uh, so I decided to go and try to, to find out the market, um,
2: uh, sat down with my partners today, and the Schulman, the CEO and founder of Imperva, got a match. Uh, about uh, the need and then our solution and start off uh, from there. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, most recently Ticketmaster outside the United States got, yeah, yeah. got breached yeah. through a chatbot, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. We, we see this case over in Oregon. There was like a, the 24-7 AI right. uh, company, also a chatbot company that caused Delta and Sears and Best Buy to, to be breached as well. Uh, we see that case of a third party breaches all the time. Um, you know, most of the organization today share the data, uh, use third parties, and that's that's the new way of, of actually doing right. things, but it comes with great responsibility mm-hmm. of putting
1: the data out there. Um, yeah. So, um, speaking with Matan Orl, CEO and founder of Panorays, that's P-A-N-O-R-A-Y-S dot com. Mm-hmm. And if you need more information, you can email us at info.svi.biz. So, I really like Matan and the Panorays story just showing that even on things as what people think are mundane as checking other websites, that there is a lot of risk in them and that having a tool like Paneraise, uh could really help keep you secure and out of trouble. Coming up next is going to be Michael Hermes, who was the former chief technology officer of the Department of Homeland Security under the Obama administration. Mike is gonna talk about how it's difficult to have innovation in the government but still it's possible and steps that can be taken in order to help the government out. If you have questions or comments, email us at info at svin.biz. So don't go away. For
0: questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host,
1: Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to the show. And our first segment's we talked about my trip to Upward Hartford, an incubator in Connecticut, and talking about cyber risk and blockchain. Um, In this segment, I have Mike Hermes, former Chief Technology of the Department of Homeland Security, and now the head of Revolution 4, a consulting firm. So, in this Cyber Tip of the Week, uh, we talked about this before, that there's something called crypto jacking malware, which is where crooks are taking over machines to mine cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. And there's a new one called Power Ghost. And why this is important, it's actually a fileless malware. So it actually will embed itself on a system, on a network, and then spread to other PCs and servers across um, other organizations. This was uncovered by Kaspersky, which, you know, supposedly a banned antivirus in the United States, but they detected it and they've spotted it all over the world, including Brazil, Colombia, Turkey, and North America, including the US. Uh, The mining malware uses the power of infected systems to mine for these cryptocurrencies, and they can embed themselves on things such as even vending machines. So it's low power uh, systems. You don't normally think of systems and it's very lucrative for the criminal. Uh, One thing that any organization can really do, we've also talked about this in previous shows, is to keep up with your patching and also to keep up with your antivirus and endpoint protection. Um, The attackers will always stay one step ahead of you, so it's just very important to keep up to date. And that's the tip of the week. Mike was most recently the Chief Technology Officer of the Department of Homeland Security. And before that, he was a software entrepreneur So, Mike, how was that transition from being a software
3: entrepreneur into the government sector? Well, you know what? I I talked to so many folks who who warned me that it was going to be like hitting a a brick wall working for the federal government. And, um, you know, the reality is it's tough. It is hard. It's a bureaucratic organization. The federal government, Department of Homeland Security is one of the biggest cabinet agencies has lots of policies and procedures and checks and balances that you don't have to deal with in the commercial sector, much less entrepreneurial organizations where you can move much more quickly. Um, You're unburdened by large layers of bureaucracy. But the reality is what I found that there's a lot of, you know, folks working hard every day trying to make a difference in in important missions. Uh, And although they, you know, might be stuck in the status quo, they might be, you know, struggling with, you know, pr- bureaucratic processes, they mostly want to do the right thing. And so I found that while I had to spend some energy convincing people what the right thing was, um, there was generally openness to, to change, you know, if, if I were able to persuade people that it was going to be good for the mission. And that was very, that, that made me feel good.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think uh, for some of my experiences uh, coming out of technology sector and financial services, it's a little bit similar, right? You have a very regulated industry that uh, is, wants to make changes. Several weeks ago, we had Jed Yueh, who's the chairman and former CEO of Delphix. But he had talked about uh, thin tech, how these disruptive technologies that are coming out right now uh, can help streamline things that weren't streamlined before. And how, uh, like when I, I usually talk about large companies, how it's like turning the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And so we're at this point of inflection. I think that's really what... Revolution four is all about is how do you get organizations like the government or a large bank or a large hospital system? How do you get them to actually um, not just embrace technology but adopt the technology as well?
3: That's exactly right. And and, and shifting, I actually wrote a, a, an article um, you know a couple years ago about sh- about turning that battleship right. It's like turning a giant ship. Um, And it's a useful metaphor because the bottom line is inertia in these large organizations, right? They have been doing things for a particular way for reasons. You know, that's one thing I I found, you know, when I entered the government is that, you know, while you might come from the outside and look at all these bureaucratic processes and scratch your head, the reality is they were put in place for reasons. Somebody made a mistake here. Somebody, you know, committed a crime there. And so you layered processes to... To protect and to safeguard and to ensure fairness and equity, um, but the reality is that these organizations more than ever need help in changing direction. Right? Um, the you know we, I, I talk a lot about you know if you if you pay attention to the world now you see bad things happening. You see cyber attacks daily. You see you know you know uh, geopolitical actors you know leveraging technology platforms for, for to, to sow disinformation and to kind of create geopolitical conflict. This is all because technology has changed so rapidly that our institutions haven't been able to, to keep up with them. Um, so I think looking at how to connect the dots between the, the incredible innovation that's occurring in places like Silicon Valley, you know, like Austin, like Boston, like even the D.C. area, uh, with these large institutions, uh, is tremendously important. Almost a matter of national security from my perspective.
1: That's a really good point. So, so what are some of the trends you're seeing um, in the government and outside the government?
3: So I think, you know, look, there's there's a lot of, um, you can play buzzword bingo with some of the major trends, right? And you people talk a lot about blockchain. They talk a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, The reality is these are two, and they talk a lot about cybersecurity, right? Um, These are areas that are really, really important. I fundamentally believe uh, that of all disruptive technologies, that artificial intelligence and machine learning is the one that's going to disrupt most It's going to disrupt everything. It's going to disrupt other technology areas. It's going to disrupt all businesses. It will enable and empower and and, and drive radical, you know, value creation in a number of areas. But it's also going to create tremendous disruption. And, you know, uh, as you hear a lot of people talk about AI, you know, you hear them, some folks are, are you know prophesying doom and gloom and others are prophesying you know a utopia and the, and the real question is you know uh, is it going to be a little both <laughs> I, I believe that um, the government is working hard to harness some of those technologies but in many cases you've got solutions chasing the problem you've got solutions looking for a problem to solve rather than inverting it and saying look what problems do I have that are really important to my mission or to my business and how do I find the right technology you know to to apply to that problem and that comes from you know a disconnect between the the problem domain and the solution domain because the folks in the government or in a large, you know, uh, commercial enterprise, they understand their, their business very well. They understand the problem domain very well, but they don't understand the solution domain, right? Right the folks in the startups, they understand their solution very well. They know how you know, AI or blockchain or whatever it may be they they are working on, how we can do things, but they don't understand the business well enough to connect the dots. And so you need facilitators almost, I think, to kind of help help connect those dots.
1: And I think that's where you and I are both sitting right now, is how do we actually be the bridge with uh, understanding the sectors we come from and understanding how these startups have solutions. Uh, I talk a lot about how the third party or vendor risk process in a large financial institution can be very cumbersome unless you are very good or you have the right help in how to answer the questionnaires in an honest way but understanding that there are reasons why the questions are there. I'm sure the government has a very similar process.
3: That's exactly right. And, and your point is, you know, there are there are there's technology that can be applied to just optimize existing processes like that. You can't always radically disrupt an existing process because there may be reasons for that, right? You can't say throw this whole 800-page, you know, 800-question survey out the window because then you lose visibility into risk, and, right. and that's a very important for the mission. You know, look at things like um, robotic process automation, yes. right? You know, this is a classic example of where you can take very interesting tech, apply it to traditional processes, and squeeze a ton of optimization right off the bat without radically reengineering the process. Now, I always advocate for looking at your processes rather than just automating them, um, but there's a place for both, you know, particularly in large bureaucratic institutions where you need to actually harness savings in order to invest in real disruptive technology.
1: That's exactly um, spot on. I think that whatever industry you're in, especially for something that's institutionalized or legacy, understanding your process is first. Process comes before a, any technology solution, and I think that's where um, many organizations often wanna jump straight to the solutioning because they think it's gonna help them with their, pro- with their problem in processes. Uh, we talk a lot about just in any outsourcing context that before you decide to outsource a function, you should really make sure you have no problems because if you do still have some really inherent problems, you're just outsourcing your problem.
3: That's right. Yeah, that's right. The same thing goes with applying technology, right? If you you automate a flawed process, you're just doing bad things faster. (laughs) And, you know, so you have to take a look at uh, what am I trying to achieve with this process? What are the outcomes I'm trying to drive? And how can I both optimize the process and optimize the application of technology to achieve those outcomes better, faster, cheaper, what have you?
1: Right, and, and going back to the point you made a couple of minutes ago about um, people just adopting technology, some of these people are just catching on to the latest and greatest buzzword. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take blockchain, which is something I'm very close to, but we talk about how blockchain may eventually become um, a very important technology, but it's iterative, just like the overused analogy of the Internet. You have to get through these generation cycles before that technology is where people think it should be, it's just not there yet. So uh, blockchain is really good now for um, recording transactions, making sure it's a mutable ledger, making sure that you have validation, but it's not yet doing all the things that maybe pure AI is better for or something like that because it's just not there yet, but it's coming.
3: That's right. And and, and again, it comes back to that, you know, basic principle that you 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 apply technology to problems that make sense. Now, the blockchain in particular, you know, is so hyped that people are, you know, we we all know the story about the Long Island Ice Tea blockchain company or whatever it was, right? I mean, you know, there's lots of examples like that. And when, you know, when when monetary concerns and and in some cases, quite frankly, greed, you know, drive those decisions, um, you, you don't end up with the best outcomes. Uh, And in the government, you know, it's different because there's no profit motive, you know, which actually creates different dynamics. What there is is mission outcome, you know, and mission motive. Um, And so, you know, startup companies who are used to driving or talking to business Uh, executives about about bottom line um, have to start changing the way they talk to speak to mission more effectively. And that's one of the things I think is very different in the public sector and the private sector. But at the end of the day, when you look at things like, you know, what blockchain can do for a large organization in terms of transparency, you know, using an immutable ledger for certain things that are really important to track, um, you know, those use cases are very similar, but you you have to talk to the executives in different ways.
1: Well, Mike, thanks again for joining us today. It's been great having you on Silicon Valley Insider. Um, what's the best way to reach you?
3: So uh, you can hit me on Twitter at, at Mike Hermes, M-I-K-E-H-E-R-M-U-S. Um, is a great way, or, or or find me on LinkedIn. So
1: coming up, we have Enon Elroy, who is the Economic Minister of Israel for the East Coast. He'll be talking about the programs he's running for both companies interested in doing business in Israel And companies are interested in new business with the U.S. and some of the economic benefits of doing that. So don't go away. If you have questions or comments, email us at info at svin.biz. And we'll be right back.
0: For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo.
1: Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. I've been talking today about my trip to Hartford, Connecticut, visiting an incubator. And the reason why this is really relevant as a Silicon Valley Insider Show is that as we go more global, we have opportunities to have investments from the U.S. into countries like Israel, and as well as countries like Israel into the U.S. So we're about to hear from Enon Elroy, who's the Economic Minister of Israel for the East Coast, but there are also West Coast branches. And he's going to talk about how to get some of those investments into startups and uh, what steps to take. So, you know, it was a really nice event. Um, tell me more about your mission and what the Israeli economic mission is all about.
4: Great. Thank you very much. Uh, well, we have 44 Israeli economic mission globally. In the U.S. we have several and at least one in the East Coast and one on the West Coast. What we do, generally speaking, we serve as a non-for-profit governmental uh, business development agency, and we try to create more awareness about the business potential uh, between US companies and uh, Israeli ones. Um, it seems that many of the American companies aware about what could be done with Israeli companies, although uh, there's much work still to be done uh, not many people knows that there are i would say about 280 uh, us americans based in israel mostly dealing with r&d and uh, a little bit of manufacturing i think the best example of a company which does quite a lot in israel is intel because they have yes. both r&d facility a huge r&d facility yeah. and several manufacturing over there Uh, but you could think of uh, uh, many other (coughs) American companies that uh, are based there so in this context what we try to do is to uh, bring together especially these days when all the business sector is very much interested in finding the the next disruptive solution and how to uh, better manage with the daily digital challenges, if I may say, which became challenging in all the sectors. So, luckily, in the last uh, decades uh, in Israel, we've succeeded to create an attractive ecosystem in quite a lot of uh, sectors. I would say uh, digital health, for sure, is uh, is a very important one. Cyber security is an amazing uh, hub uh, it's second in its size only to the U.S. Yes, uh, I think
1: by per capita though it's way beyond
4: the U.S. Well, <laughs> that's 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 easy <laughs> because we are a very small economy only eight million inhabitants. So uh, you can think of uh, smart mobility, you can think of uh, energy, and also advanced manufacturing. Um, I think everything which is, you know, related to IT and digitalization is getting, have quite an interesting exposure uh, in Israel. Um, you know, today activity, if I may say, it's our second uh, mission uh, in Connecticut, together with the local partners. So we had our first joint summit, uh, I think it was November 2017, when we brought uh, digital health companies which met with the different players from Connecticut and the area. Um, you know, it's the capital of the insurance company. So for us, it was a target for quite a lot of time. And today, <coughs> we had the pleasure to bring more than 20 Israeli cyber uh, companies, which will be meeting tomorrow uh, potential partners in New York and a day after in Atlanta. And that shows you a little bit what we do. On general, we bring several times, I would say almost... Once or more than once a month, a delegation of Israeli companies. So last month we had cyber, uh, we had uh, sports, sports, tech companies, food tech companies, uh, digital health companies, and uh, and bio, which were in uh, Bio Boston. And in this context, uh, we're very happy that uh, you know Israel today become a place. That when somebody is interested in trying to find solution and innovation is one of the places that one should consider to consult with.
1: You know, and um, thank you again for being on the show today. I've been to Israel; it's a most, one of the most beautiful countries I've ever been to, and I think that what the Israeli Economic Mission is doing for both. Israel in the U.S. Is, is phenomenal. So thanks again for being here. I hope to talk to you again soon.
4: Thank you very much. One last thing that people may be interested to know is that we have a binational fund between uh, U.S. and Israel. This is the Bird Foundation. This fund is active already 40 years and gave support financially to more than 900 entities both in Israel and in uh, in the U.S., and bottom line, what they do, if a U.S. company and Israeli companies create a substantial R&D agreement, they can apply to this fund and get funding. we just been informed that uh, a Connecticut-based uh, insurance company and an Israeli startup, which met in our previous event in November, they created a joint project, and they got one $1 million from the Bird Foundation to uh, support their efforts. So I invite both American and Israeli companies to use it.
1: That, that's great to know. So if you have questions or comments, email us at info at svin.biz, and I'll be sure to get you connected with the Israeli economic mission. So thanks again, Inan. So again, I'd like to thank Upward Hartford for my experience back in Connecticut a couple weeks ago. And all the guests that are on today's show, if you have any questions or comments about what you heard, email us at info@svin.biz, and we'll see you next week.
0: You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Kuh. For questions or comments on today's program, or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846. 888828svin